Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. So we are now picking back up on a series that we started some weeks ago that would carry us through the summer simply entitled The War. It's a series that acknowledges what the sixth chapter of Ephesians tells us, that there's a a reality of warfare that is spiritual in nature, that there is an enemy among us whose name is Satan, who seeks to undo us, who seeks to bring us defeat, who seeks to confound even the very plans of God for our lives, and therefore we must be on the alert and we must wage spiritual war. Now, the other thing that we've seen is that this war is not waged in the way that a conventional physical war might be waged. This war is not waged through a lot of flash in the pan. It's not waged through a lot of charisma. It is waged one Bible verse at a time, one prayer at a time, one faithful right decision at a time. It is waged through wearing a belt that tells me that it is the truth of God and nothing else that ties all these things together. It is waged through a, a breastplate that, that empowers me to make the right choice rather than the wrong choice. It is waged through wearing shoes that allow me to stand on the firmness of the message of the gospel as well as spread its message. In other words, spiritual warfare is not really all that hard to understand. It's just about putting on the armor and preparing myself for a battle that scripture tells me is most assuredly coming. Now here's the question though that we need to ask today as we consider the next in a a series of the pieces of armor that we read about here in the sixth chapter of Ephesians. How do we know that we know that we know that this is going to protect us? You ever ask yourself that, especially in the middle of a battle, in the middle of a trial, in the middle of a tribulation? How how do I know that what that Bible says is true? Because it's one thing to sit in church together and raise our fists or our hands and, and, and just triumphant declaration say, we believe the word of God. In fact, this church family is so solid in that belief that if your pastor ever said anything otherwise, he'd be looking for work, wouldn't he? Yeah, and that's the way it should be. But it's a little harder to to live that out, isn't it? It's harder to, to, to close the gap between our knowledge and our practice. Philosophers call this question, how do we know that we know? They call it an epistemological question. You want to say that really fast five times? epistemological. It looks something like this. There are three primary categories of philosophy. There is metaphysics, which says, ask the question, what is real? All right. Is, is this experience you're having right now, just to put it in a base level, is it real? Or are you just dreaming? How do you know you're not dreaming? How do you know that seat you're sitting in is not real? How do I know that, that all, what, I, what I perceive right now is 27 years of vocational ministry and growing up in South Carolina and doing college and postgraduate work in Kentucky and being married to this woman over here and just coming back from a 25th anniversary celebration? How do I know all of that is real and I'm not just going to wake up in the morning a plumber from Massachusetts who dreamed it all? Well, for one thing, plumbers from Massachusetts don't talk like me, so I understand it. But how do, how do I know, right? What is real? That's important, isn't it? Because if you're going to make, look at that third category there that says ethics, what choices should I make? 
If you're going to make right choices, you got to do that in concert with reality, don't you? If I don't acknowledge gravity and I jump off the pinnacle of this building, I'm in trouble because I've made a decision that's not congruent with reality. That's why metaphysics are as important as ethics. But the thing that is so important that closes the gap between those two is epistemology. How do I know what is real? How do I know what is true? Now, why is that important? Well, because the propensity in the Christian faith, particularly its modernistic version in the West, is to appeal to feelings or to subjective experience. All right, we even have this in some of our old hymns. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. That, that's an epistemological statement. Here's how I know he lives. I have an experience. I mean, well, I don't deny that you have an experience or that you should. In fact, without that experience, you are not redeemed. So that experience is very important. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Well, of course he does if you're a follower of Jesus. But the question is, is that the total ground of your assurance? Haven't you had days when you didn't feel like he lived? You going to be honest and say, yeah, or are you going to lie to your preacher? Yeah, there's been days, haven't there? I, I don't know. I don't know what to think about this. Okay, Here, Here's the point of today's message. God doesn't just want us to be grounded in his truth, wear the belt of truth. He doesn't just want us living in his righteousness, sharing him with others, living confidently in his salvation. He wants us to know that we know that we know that it is true, which is why Paul says the following in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, and this is, continues our series together. He says, take up the sword of of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The spiritual nature of the resources that the church must use is no more plain when, than when we consider our 2,000-year reliance upon the written Scriptures, the written Word of God. And today, what I'm hoping we'll see is that that book in your lap or that app that's on your phone or however you're accessing God's Word today is the most powerful weapon you can have available to you in your arsenal. You know, from the 1960s to really the late 1980s, uh, this country, the United States, was involved in what the media referred to as an arms race with what was then Soviet Russia, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Uh, for those of you who were born 1990 or after, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, some of you may be even... Be, be taught right now. There were some pretty good ideas. You should probably ignore those. Uh, maybe read a little bit of history. Um, just a side note. We were in an arms race. Now, what's an arms race? Well, well basically, it's defined as the, this collection, this, this period of history that, that, was, that involved the rapid development and purchase and acquisition of the deadliest weapons we have ever seen in all of human history. I mean, wipe out the planet kind of stuff. Based on the perceived advantages of our adversaries, the aim of this period was simple. We want to be the guy with the biggest gun. We want to be the people with the superior weapons. Well, let me tell you something. When it comes to spiritual warfare, you, there's no need for an arms race. That book in your lap, that app on your phone, however you're accessing the written scriptures, it is already and will always be the most powerful weapon you will have at your disposal. The scriptures are full of inexhaustible power. Now, that means that if there's a problem with us, 
It's not due to a lack of what we can possess. The problem is how often we wield that power. George Barna, the famed Christian statistician, very, very accurate guy, did a, a survey. It actually just came out last year. If you want to look it up, just Google it. Not now, but later. Um, was a study called The State of the Bible. It was interesting what he gleaned from that. Two-thirds of Americans are curious about what it says. Half ponder how it applies to life. More than half believe that it positively contributes to spiritual growth. So you would think, again, if that's what I believe, that there would be a really close connection between what I believe and what I practice, right? There's a huge gap, though, as it turns out, because in a related Christianity Today article, this was discovered. 20% of people who regularly attend church, all right? So you got the general population, two-thirds of which are saying, it's a good book, we can learn a lot from, we can grow a lot from. Meanwhile, people of people inside the church, less than 20% read it even weekly, okay? If that's accurate, and I, I, I have no doubt to believe that it is based on the history and the track record of those statisticians that put this together, you know what that means? It means that 80% of the people in front of me right now, that book that's in your lap, that app that you're looking at, that's it for you. You're gonna close it, you're gonna walk out of this building, and the next time you're gonna open it is gonna be when you're sitting in that seat again looking at me. Some of you open your Bibles the same way your pastor flosses. Sorry, I just got back from the dentist this week. So I got my biannual lecture. Okay. Mr. Rainey, do you floss? Uh, yeah, not, not as often as I should. Well, of course, that triggers then the more incriminating investigation. When was the last time you flossed? I don't know. When was the last time I was here? <laughs> now, if there are any kids listening, you should floss. All right, don't follow your pastor's example on that. But yeah, it's <laughs> so, some of you, your Bible reading is like you wonder why is my life? Why does it feel like I'm always defeated? This is important because Paul, in describing the Bible here, uses the metaphor of the sword. It's a particular word that's probably best translated dagger, okay? And there's actually some debate. We have the sword here, and it's short enough actually to meet the standards for the word that Paul uses. But you've also got a little knife over here, and there's actually some debate in the scholarship about which of these Paul is referring to, because whatever it is, the design of this particular weapon is for close quarter combat, okay? In the military, they sometimes we use, I don't know if they still use this, but they used to use the phrase broken arrow, which means there was a line and we're over here and the enemy's over there. Broken arrow is we don't know where the line is anymore because the combat has become so intense and it is so close quarter and you need to know that is exactly and always how your enemy fights. He is a close quarter combatant. He is going to get into your life. He is going to meddle in your family. He is going to often get close enough to even mess around in your mind. Satan is excellent at close quarter combat. In fact, he did it with Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, we read of Jesus going out into the desert to fast and prepare for his coming ministry. And including, included in that preparation is temptation and suffering and all manner of things we don't want to hear about anymore in the West. But if you want to be prepared for what God has for you, in all likelihood, you're going to have to endure some of that. Jesus goes out into the wilderness to fast. 
We're going to ask for our people to consider very at various levels. I know some of you have different dietary restrictions, those kind of things. We're not going to prescribe the same level for everybody, but we are going to call a fast of God's people at Covenant during the month of September. Pastor David Lyle is going to be describing what that is in just a couple of weeks and giving you the rationale both behind what the Bible teaches about fasting and also why we would do it at this strategic moment in the life of our church. And in the middle of that fast, the first thing Satan says to Jesus is, take these stones and turn them into bread. I mean, I don't know about you, but I have fasted before. And, and the, the fleshly side of me, the first, few, the, the first few days, I could swear I'm hearing God tell me to get something to eat. I, I mean, it's tough. It, it's tough. So how does Jesus respond? It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, Pastor David's going to expound on the idea of fasting in a few weeks. But if you want to know the biblical rationale behind fasting, Jesus just gave it to you right there. It is because we do not live by bread alone. In fact, we need the word of God more than we need bread, more than we need water, more than we need medicine. Man shall not live by bread alone. Where'd Jesus get that? From the Bible. Satan then takes him up on the pinnacle of a temple and he says, well, you throw yourself off for it is written. You know, Satan does this stuff too. He will give his angels charge over you so that you don't even cast your foot against a stone. Satan will, will twist the scriptures. How many of you like the Medea movies, the Tyler Perry Medea movies? Can I, am, I, am I telling you more about your past than you want to know at this point? I love those movies, and especially I love when Medea quotes scripture. Um... Because inevitably, it's not right, right? Inevitably, it's, it's quoted for the purpose of reinforcing something she wants to do that's wrong. You ever notice that? And I, I think, frankly, that's intentional in the writing. Tyler Perry is a follower of Jesus. And so I, I have no doubt he's, he's writing that into the script to demonstrate to us the absurdity of how we so often will use the Word of God, just like Satan. To the extent that I watch this stuff and I laugh about it, and truthfully, now, every time I read Matthew 4, I close my eyes and I can hear Satan in the voice of Medea. <laughs> Hallelujah. I, I can hear it. Throw yourself. Well, Jesus, Jesus counters that. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't use the word of God to your own benefit. I'm not using it to my own benefit. He's called me to something higher. I'm not going to fall for that because I know what the word of God teaches. Thirdly, he takes him up on a high mountain and shows him a place. And he says, if you'll worship me, I'll give you all of this, which is just stupid because it all belonged to Jesus to begin with. But rather than asserting his domain, Jesus actually continues to set the example for us. What does he say? Be gone, Satan, for it is written. You see the, you see the pattern here? You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. What Satan tried to do to Jesus, he will attempt to do with us. There's three things, in fact, he wants to do. First, he wants, to, he wants us to doubt God's character and his word. This goes all the way back to Genesis 3, when God has set the boundaries and set the rules and given our first parents their freedom, and yet the serpent comes into the garden, and he asks this seemingly innocent question, has God said? Are you sure about that? 
Again, we're back to this thing called epistemology. You may not be able to say it five times really fast. You may think there's no need to use big words like that. That's fine, but the concept, wow, is this important, isn't it? Has God said? And then he moves from there to, well, this is really, I think, what God wants. He's trying to limit you. He's trying to hold you down. He's trying to hold you back. He doesn't want you to be the real you. You get to define the real you. Satan wants you to doubt God's character, his desire for your best and your intention. Secondly, God want, Satan wants you to substitute religion for his word. Jesus once said to the religious leaders, you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, but you neglect the things that matter the most. Multiple times he would say to them, have you not read? Are you, are you just skimming on the surface? Using coffee cup theology? Take a verse out of context? Yeah, that's what will happen. Uh, guys, go to, the, go to the next slide. This is a picture I took of a plaque on, on our anniversary trip. We, we went to this wonderful breakfast place. I'm not going to call the name of it because I'm about to make fun of this plaque. But, but man, did they have awesome breakfast. The grits, oh, I'm sorry. I love y'all West Virginians. I do, but I grew up in South Carolina. I can't get good grits. I can't. We were down there and we were like, oh, this is amazing. So it was good food, but I looked up and I saw this plaque and I took a picture of it. My wife said, what are you doing? I said, I got something I'm going to use in a sermon in a couple of weeks. Because this is stupid. <laughs> Do what makes you happy. Be with who makes you smile. Laugh as much as you breathe. Love as long as you live. Doesn't that sound wonderful? If your mind didn't throw some red flags up, I love you. You may not be as well-versed in the word of the Lord as you need to be. Because that plaque is absurd. How do I know it's absurd? Because it is written, love does not seek its own. Love doesn't always involve doing what makes you happy. Sometimes it involves doing what makes somebody else happy. Love doesn't always involve smiling. I smiled a lot last week, but Mrs. Rainey and I both will admit to you we have not always smiled at each other. Is it okay then for her to go find somebody who makes her smile, for me to go do that when somebody makes me? Is, it, if, is that love? Not according to the Word of God. It's not love. Laugh as much as you breathe? Are you kidding me? Everything's not funny. And y'all know me. I love to laugh. But not everything's funny. When you lose a loved one and there's a dead body in a casket in front of you and your pastor's up here cracking knock-knock jokes, do you find that appropriate? No. Then how in the world do you do all of that? You, you can't do all of this. You cannot love as long as you live according to the word of God and pursue all of those other things. But you know what? When Satan speaks to you and speaks to me, this is how he speaks. You're like, dude, you're making an awful lot out of a plaque on a restaurant wall. I, I get it. I get it. But I'm telling you, I can hear the sound of a forked tongue in that. I can hear it. And this is what he does. Smiling people that give you religious fluff. That's what this is. It's not Christianity. It's paganism. Do what makes you happy. It's paganism. Satan wants you to substitute that for the word. 
All right. If he can get you to do this and make you think, oh, that's a word from the Lord right there. No, it's not. Here's the third thing he wants you to do. He wants you to listen to voices other than God's voice. In, in ancient times, Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah warned against false religious leaders who cried out, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, but they didn't represent the voice of God to his people. Just because you're listening to a preacher doesn't mean you're hearing God's words. One of the reasons you need to be involved in understanding what the word teaches and what it does not, whether it's this one or another one on our staff or somebody you're watching on television, whoever it might be, you've got to be the Bereans who even when they were listening to the apostle, they went back to their homes and they opened the word of God to see if what he said was true. What I've noticed is a couple of different responses among Christians. They either just just lock, stock, and barrel, buy everything because they like the guy. Or they object and scream and throw a temper tantrum merely because they disagree with something. But nobody's opening their Bible to see if this is actually true. Nobody's doing that. The answer to all of this is to become familiar with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Because brothers and sisters, Satan is not afraid of you, and he is not afraid of your words, and he is not afraid of your ridiculous, nonsensical declarations. He's not afraid of mine either. But let me tell you, there is one set of words, three very simple ones that send him running every single time if they are quoted accurately and wielded rightly. And those three words are the same words Jesus used repeatedly in the wilderness. It is written. You quote that to the devil, he will run. He will flee. He will be defeated. And so turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And let's, let's look in detail at the unlimited power we have from God's Word. The context here is actually a big section that says there are two groups of people. There are, there are people who are going to enter God's rest, and they have certain characteristics. And then there's another group that are not going to inherit God's rest. And rest in this passage is a reference to, to rich spiritual blessing. And in the context of spiritual warfare, that blessing is victory. I'm going to have victory over my enemy. I'm not going to fall prey into sin. I'm not going to do the wrong thing. And that victory is promised for this reason. Look at Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's a mouthful, isn't it? I mean, either that's true or it's not. And no in-between on this. Let, let's take a look at this. Four things that we're taught here about the sword of the Spirit, which Paul in Ephesians tells us that we need to wield. The first is that the Word of God is dynamic. What that means is what the author of Hebrews means. When he says the Word of God is alive, it's alive. Now that ought to, if, if you're like me, that prompts a question. How can words on a page be alive? How, how can that happen? Well, in the first place, although the language between this passage and the Ephesians passage are highly similar, the author of Hebrews isn't first speaking of Scripture, the written Word of God, so much as he's speaking of Jesus, the living Word of God. The Word that became flesh, the Word that lived in perfection, the Word who, uh, who died as an atoning death, the Word who absorbed our sin, the Word who rose bodily from the dead, the Word who is still alive and seated at the right hand of the Father. And, and the, the living Word is what he first responds to. But make no mistake, 
you don't get to the living word unless you come through the written word. This is how he reveals himself. It comes through the written word of God. How many of you have been reading the Bible and all of a sudden it just came alive? You had, a, you had an experience like that? As you read it, you were depressed and it gave you the picture of a new reality and you walked out encouraged. You, you were hurting and its words were like a balm that brought healing to your soul. You were, you were in sin and its straightforward rebuke was like Jesus punched you in the throat. But it brought you back to him. It was a loving kindness. That's the power of the scriptures. It's because the word, the written, like the living word to whom it points, is alive. And so when you ingest the word, when you memorize the word, which we don't, I don't think we emphasize that much anymore, do we? I mean, once we get up into the, up into the youth department from beyond, I, it's like, I don't know, do we even do that anymore? But when you memorize, which is another way of hiding the word in your heart, what are you doing? You're speaking the very words of the same God who said, let there be light, and there was light. It is written. Those words are powerful because they're alive. But secondly, they're, they're effective. The Word of God, he says, is, is alive and active. Meaning, those words that you read on that page are full of the exact same energy that created the entire cosmos. The exact same energy that killed an entire global population in a flood. The exact uh, energy that drowned the entire Egyptian army. The same energy that raised Jesus from the dead. The same energy that will once and for all time at the end of the age crush the head of the serpent and throw him into a bottomless pit. That's the book that contains unstoppable energy. Now, outside the Bible, the, the term effective or active, it's used almost exclusively in the ancient world in a medical sense. It's describing the, the influence of medication. And if you know, you probably have been aware of this if you've lived for any length of time. With medicine, you can, uh, you can have a good reaction to medicine or you can have a bad reaction to medicine. And so you, gotta, you, gotta, you have to consider that, right? In 2002, most of the time what we want is we want instant pain relief, right? It's how, one, of the re one of the ways we got into this opioid crisis is, is we... You know, the medical profession said the highest value is take away the pain. Well, if that's the highest value, then addiction's not that big of a deal. Now we've discovered it's a really big deal. So maybe we should look at this in a more complex, nuanced way. Uh, same thing is true if you smoke a joint. Well, yeah, you're going you're gonna to have instant effects from that. But guess what? When the high wears off, the same problems that you sought to escape, they're still going to be there. The same stuff, right? And so you can either take medication that's, that, that acts more quickly but merely masks the symptoms, or you can take medication that may take a little longer to have its effect, but it's actually going to solve the problem. In 2002, I was diagnosed with apnea. Uh, it's a sleep disorder that, at least on my part, was related to several factors, one of which was a deviated septum, which if you're going to play football, you should probably consider that that might be a, a problem. You might get your nose broken, and uh, you, there may be some long-term effects from that, okay? And so I, because of that and several other factors, what was happening was I was going to sleep. If you don't know what apnea is, when you go to sleep and you stop breathing in your sleep, your air supply is cut off, either by the way that you toss and turn or the way your head is positioned, the way your tongue rolls into the back of your throat, or in the, in the case of the deviated septum, there's not enough air getting up through the nose. And, and you, Well, what happens if you go without oxygen, you die, right? So then what happens is your body as a defense mechanism will wake you up so that you don't die tonight. That's a good thing. 
The bad thing is, it does, if it's doing that every 15 to, to 45 minutes, you're not getting the sleep you need, are you? And if you don't get good rapid eye movement, REM sleep over time, you may not die from a lack of oxygen, but you're going to keep waking yourself and your heart and your liver and your pancreas. You're going to keep waking all that stuff up until finally it's going to just go, I give up. And you're going to have a heart attack, a stroke. Over time, apnea can kill you. And so the medical physicians, they, 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 they prescribed a treatment plan for me. The first night I went home with the treatment plan. I went to bed tired and grumpy. And I woke up tired and grumpy. It didn't do a thing for me. Or at least it didn't feel like it was, right? It just, but you know, after about nine weeks of, you know, and my wife would say, yeah, he was grumpy. Like, after about nine weeks, I got up one morning and I thought, I have energy. <laughs> wow, I'm better. Some of us treat the word of God like a joint, if we don't get an instant high, we just lay it aside and go, well, it must not work. I need something else. Tony Evans says that most, most Christians, that's the way they expect God's word to work. Not so much like a joint. He says like Alka-Seltzer. Maybe he's speaking to a more conservative audience than I am. I figure you guys can take it though, right? It's like Alka-Seltzer. You plop, plop, and then all of a sudden you see it, it comes up. And he says, ingesting the word of God is less like that and more like taking a multivitamin. Anybody in here take a multivitamin? Yeah, if you're over the age of 40, you probably should. And so what do you do? You, you go and you pay what you consider, at least I consider, an ex, is an exorbitant amount of money for this stuff, big old plastic bottle, and you pop the pill, and then the next day you pop the pill, and then the next day you pop the pill, and then about 15 days later, the bottle's empty, so you go back and you pay an absorbent amount again, and you keep popping this stuff, and about 30 days in, how many of you are like me, and you're like, I don't even know why I'm taking this? I, I, it's doing nothing for me but it is doing something for me. See, for those of you who take a multivitamin and you live with someone who doesn't, you know how this works. It doesn't feel all that, all that different until one day a raging case of diarrhea blows through your house and you're the only one not sitting on the pot. And you say, it worked. It worked. This is the word of the Lord. It's effective. You might read it every day for a week. You know, we got tools, by the way, for you to do this as you leave today. And you may say, all right, I'm committed to this. I'm, I'm on, game on. I'm going to get into the word like I never have before. And a week from now, you're going to be like, this isn't doing anything for me. You just keep doing it. I don't care if you feel it. All right? Trust me, a day is coming when your enemy is going to mount a full frontal assault on you and your family. And that will be the day when you will know the word of the Lord is alive and active. Because that is the day when you can say it is written with a confidence and an accuracy that will send your enemy flying. Give yourself daily to the word. It is dynamic, it is effective, and now here's the other thing, it's dangerous. Sharper than any two-edged sword. The same word Paul used in Ephesians 6, you see this now. The Word of God is, is like a sharp dagger, a weapon intended for close-quarter combat. And this dagger is literally fine-edged. 
Uh, it's taken me 25 years to learn that my wife's kitchen knife collection is rather deceiving. I can pull out a great big old knife like you would cut a watermelon with, and it's pretty good for that initial thrust, you know, and then once you go to that thrust, the watermelon rind kind of breaks and it makes it easy. But if I try to cut a tomato with that thing, I'm like, you know, it's just not working. A great big old knife. On the other hand, there's this little bitty thing. It literally looks like a toy that would belong in my daughter's toy kitchen collection called a paring knife. It doesn't look like much, but it will cut your dadgum finger off. Right? That's the way the Word of God is being described here. It's, it's dangerous. It's, it's a scalpel. It has scalpel-level sharpness, spiritually designed for close-quarter combat with your enemy. And, th and this, this is why there's no more frightening word to Satan than it is written. And so here, the question that I ask is, why, why don't more people arm themselves in this way? Sometimes it's spiritual laziness. Sometimes it's something's more exciting or more flashy than just getting into the Word of God. It, I don't know what it is. I mean, I mean, struggle is one thing. I get that, you know, some people are at various levels of literacy. Some of you learn by hearing rather than by reading. And well, well, you've got, if you've got a Bible app on your phone, chances are it's going to read it to you. In this day of technology, there are no more excuses. So, so struggle with the right approach is one thing. But if you are absolutely ambivalent about the very breath of God, you may not know him. But I've, I've found another reason that people sometimes don't pick this weapon up on a regular basis. Not, it's dynamic and it's effective, but it's not just dangerous, it's penetrative. Notice this last phrase. The writer of Hebrews says, it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So, so remember now, not, not just the connection of this passage in Hebrews to the Ephesians passage, but also to its own context. The writer of Hebrews says, this is who enters God's rest. This is who receives God's blessings. This is who triumphs in God's victory. And this is who doesn't. For the word of the Lord will sort all of this out. That's basically what he's saying here. You ever accidentally pick up a sharp knife and get cut? I accidentally reached into a toolbox once way too quickly and ran this side of this thumb right across a carpet cutter. That required an ER visit. And there are times when you get wounded like that. There are times spiritually when those kinds of wounds will be inflicted. I think a lot of people have had that experience with the Bible. I wonder how many people in front of me have had that kind of experience with the Bible, and that's why you don't pick it up anymore. Because you were looking like, you know, you were thinking you, you were going to be Mace Windu with a purple lightsaber. You had no idea that the first thing this thing was going to cut would be you. But that's how it works. That's, that's how it works. The Word of the Lord will penetrate all of these areas. When Paul says sword of the spirit, where the author of Hebrews uses the same metaphor, the dagger, don't delude yourself into thinking that you get to wield it like a hero before you become the subject of it. The author of Hebrews says the breath of God knows your heart, 
knows your ponderings. It, it, it knows our intents. And with a scalpel-like surgical accuracy that could remove a cancerous tumor, the Scriptures will lay bare your heart and expose everything about me and you that is not pleasing to God. This is a dangerous, effective, living weapon that can bring you ultimate victory. But brothers and sisters, if you want to wield it rightly, you must first be wounded by it. And there are just a lot of people that aren't willing to do that. And it saddens me. It breaks my heart when I see that. Oh, I, there's a lot of people out there that want to see the Bible do that to somebody else. Pastor, would you please tell my wife to submit to me? Pastor, that was a great message. Man, I wish so-and-so had been here to hear it. I don't know where they were today, but they needed that one. I've always just come that close to resisting the temptation to go, oh, I am so sorry. I, I am a colossal failure today. I was aiming at you. And I missed. Parents that bring their kids. I'm not telling you not to bring your kids or bring your kids' issues or, whatever, or, or their neighbor or whatever. And like you, You're not armed with the Word. You're not invested in their life you're probably not reacting to this in the right way and it's because it may even be because your motivation isn't even for their good it's that you you got to feel like a good christian that had some success and you can't seem to do anything with them and so you bring them into my office and sit them and say listen to the preacher and you make me the bad guy thanks a lot moreover they'll never listen to me because you're the one that told them to listen to me with that attitude, that motivation. Too many people do that kind of thing because they have not first themselves been wounded. And at the end of the day, it is because they have believed the lie of Satan not to trust the character of God. It is amazing to me in this day of medical technology, the number of you who's had surgery in here, like had to get knocked out on the table. Yep, there you go. The number of you who will lay on a table with a doctor whose name you know, but whose history you do not, but because he has MD behind his name, will let you, you will let him put you to sleep and you will give all control over to him, won't you? I mean, has it ever occurred to anybody, like I've, I'm one of those guys that's been blessed at least at this point in my life with generally good health. The Lord has, has, has honored me with that. I'm very thankful to that. So I've never had surgery. So if, it, if, it, if that day ever comes, I'm literally like, you know, I wonder, I mean, I know he seems like a nice guy, but should I look at his medical transcripts? I mean, it would be great if he didn't make a C in a really important class, like handling a scalpel 101, right? Wouldn't it be better if, if, if he knew what he was doing, but no, we just assume. Well, you know what? Most of the time, rightly so. If you're about to have surgery, don't get nervous because of what I'm saying, okay? We got a great system. We've got a great system of credentialing, licensing, accountability. It's, I don't want to tick off any nurses in here. Either I might need you one day, right? It's a great system. So you can trust it. I'm not saying you can't trust it. I'm saying it is almost wickedly ironic that we will trust that and we will not trust the Lord. That we'll try to hang on to our crap. That we would not be willing to say, Lord, I'm laying on the table and I'm giving everything to you with your word open. Slice me open. Slice me open. Lay bare my sins and everything that is going to bring harm to me and to my loved ones. 
cut out the cancer of rebellion and self-centeredness and stubbornness. Lord, do your worst on me so that when you are done through me, you can do your best. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So let me give you some really practical steps and then we'll be done here. And these are not hard, these are not complicated. Number one, have a reading plan. Have a reading plan. There's a lot of them out there. In fact, we got a few out in the front for you to choose from. You go out in the foyer today, look to your left, there's going to be a table sitting there, and among other things, uh, it's going to have a card with all kinds of electronic, web-based apps, other kinds of things, ways that you can access, that you will get yourself on a Bible reading plan. You've also got just tangible copies of a Bible reading plan, even one with check marks where every day you can say, okay, I've, I've ingested this much of Scripture, and you can, you can check that out. But you need a reading plan that will help you accurately define Scripture. Don't just sit at your bedside and go, Lord, speak to me. Okay? A guy did that once, and he landed on the, on the verse, Judas hanged himself. So he thought, well, maybe I made the mistake. And so he did it again. Go and do likewise. And said, well, this, this isn't working out. So let me, let me try one more time. What you must do, do quickly. That is a profoundly stupid way to open God's Word. Okay? Don't misuse it like that. That's like giving your eight-year-old kid a loaded gun and putting a blindfold on him and sending him out into the middle of the street. That is not the way you want to read the Word of God. Have a reading plan. We got some plans out here that can help you with that. Number two, have a learning plan. I wrote a book last year specifically for this purpose to benefit God's people at Covenant to help you, among other things, understand the larger meta-narrative of Scripture and to better interpret it, and we're giving it away today. We normally sell it just as a means of recouping the cost today. There's a, there's a limited number of them out there on that same table. You can take them until they're gone. If you find them, in fact, if you take it, you hang on to it because I'm also going to say this. If you see one laying around, take it. It's yours. Finders, keepers, something like that comes to mind. Okay? Our, this body, we want to equip our body to accurately handle this powerful weapon. We've also got classes coming up this fall. I just mentioned that. You don't need to be, uh, have aspirations to be a teacher or a preacher to want to be a part of that. You could just come because you want to be equipped because, Lord, Pastor, I got, a, I got a family and I need to defend them against the enemy. I got sin in my heart that needs to be exercised so I can have victory over the enemy. Have a learning plan. Here's the third thing. Join a small group. Several new ones are launching, and that too is out in the foyer today. Growing God's Word. Growing in God's Word is not something you can do alone. It's not something you can do merely by sitting there. You should be here on Sunday because this is what we do as a church family. And as we move forward in unity, that's got to be driven from a singular point, not from multiple points. So it's very important that you attend corporate worship. You cannot do less than that, but you must do more than that. Join a small group. A covenant small group that ties everything we're doing together as the body of Christ in with, with your group because you need the fellowship of other believers. Imagine, my brothers and sisters, how Satan would react to hundreds of us armed with this close quarter combat weapon. Allow him to lay open your heart so that you can also wield it rightly. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. 
You and I have something Moses didn't have. He had to wait on a burning bush. We have something the apostles didn't have. They had to wait on a message in tongues. You want to hear God speak? Take up the sword of the Spirit. Let's pray together. God, I am overwhelmed with grief at the times that I have neglected such a profound truth that unlike any other period in history, when your people want to hear you speak, we can and we don't have to wait on anything because we have the faith once delivered to the saints. The very breath of God, which is profitable for teaching and for rebuke and for correction and for training in righteousness and that, that makes us, sometimes through admittedly experiences that can be unpleasant, that makes us the people you want us to be. Father, may we commit ourselves afresh today to its intake, to its memorization, to, to its settling in our souls, to our, our willingness to just lose control to its dictates. The law of the Lord, as we read earlier in Psalm 19, is perfect. Jeremiah said it is sweet like honey to our lips. Lord, may we value it, and may you empower us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.